I'm Leora Scherzer, and you are listening to the Expanding Economics Podcast. Montreal is an international hub for artificial intelligence research with the world's largest academic AI research community. Montreal universities have received over $177 million in funding toward AI research, and the Quebec provincial government has received $100 million to create an AI research cluster. Industry has quickly followed. Leaders in big tech such as Microsoft and DeepMind have established research labs in Montreal. The AI industry is already transforming Montreal's urban landscape and local economy as we know it. Recently, for example, dozens of AI company offices have emerged in Park X, an historically working-class neighborhood, which has contributed to local rent increases and gentrification. To understand the impacts of this industry on the city of Montreal, I think we need to unpack the current state of AI governance and interrogate whether the wealth that this industry promises to generate will be reinvested in the local community. Spoiler alert, probably not. Our guest today is Anna Branduscescu, a doctoral student at McGill University who researches AI governance as well as AI policy and funding in Canada. Anna's academic background is in economics and geography, and she has worked for many years on open data, open governance, and digital rights projects. I should let you know that this interview was recorded nearly one year ago in February 2021, so some of the information might not be completely up to date. My first question is, why do you think it's the case that Montreal or Canada specifically is leading in AI development? One of my professors, Jonathan Stern, has a hypothesis that Montreal was selected as the AI hub because of the abundance of cheap electricity available in Quebec. I couldn't actually find anything about this, like any journalism. The only explanation for the why Montreal question I found was on behalf of Element AI CEO Yoshua Bengio, who said, or Bengio, who said that um, Montreal has emerged as a powerhouse due to the combination of great universities, great companies, including a number of Silicon Valley companies, and Canada's ethos of cooperation among elite minds, so he says. So much in that question. So I think a lot of this came from uh, federal policy and geopolitical sort of bilateral agreements around technology and innovation and industry and how can Canada not fall behind in the AI race. So there's definitely that element um, at the international level. At the national level, we've seen a lot of funding um, play out as well. So there's so much in terms of what industry can do or what research that is 
uh, would support industry, right? So that's like academia and academia adjacent industry. So those are the two sort of main stakeholder groups that have been, it's political why AI funding has happened in Canada and specifically Quebec is one of the main provinces that received funding from the federal government, as well with looking at Alberta and Ontario and BC, um, which people don't talk as much about. And I think it's interesting that you pointed out Yashua Benjio's quote on this, right? Because he's been such an influence in the AI scene in Montreal, Quebec, and Canada that, you know, during the AI winter, which you might know a little bit about or not. Um, Would you be able to elaborate on what that is? Yeah, sure. So in the early 2000s, Canada weathered this AI winter, which is basically a period when, and a time frame of reduced funding and interest in AI research. So during this time, Quebec really, uh, the government subsidized AI research heavily and in Yasha as well. I really recommend to listen and to uh, read Yuan Stevens' presentation on the AI scene uh, in Montreal as well. And she discusses the AI winter and also the dynamics between all the key players. This winter weathering uh, really helped create this long-term plan of funding, which really started with CIFAR, which is the Center of Research uh, Excellence. Uh, I'm butchering the actual acronym right now, but it's basically um, the main body that delegates AI research. So they've established the pan-Canadian AI strategy, but AI research strategy more specifically. And they got this money, $125 million from the federal government. I believe it's ISED to do this. And you have Yashua Benjio along with Jeffrey Hinton and Richard Sutton, who are these AI experts, they each have their own major lab or center. So Mila in Montreal, you have Vector in Toronto and Amy in Alberta. Those are the three nodes and it's all in relation to how the AI research has been shaping out and playing out in Canada based on those centers, the public-private partnerships within those centers, as well as the academic affiliations and industry. It's hard to track who exactly is controlling where uh, AI research is, is dominant, or it's not like necessarily any particular individual, but you also did mention Yoshua Bengio and some of the other Element AI original CEOs or founders. And I was wondering if there's a specific network of people or who specifically in Montreal has their hand in leading the AI industry and its development? Or is it kind of like you were saying before, much bigger than any specific list of individuals or organizations? So there's definitely a list. <laughs> I think um, I would recommend, I mean, I could share this with you. You might have not seen it already. The This AI ecosystem data set I created for Canada of just yes. like legal entities. So I think that that's a good one to you know, look at all the Montreal entities. And of course, they're only categorized by public and private, but it's a start to kind of see, you know, what, who's in, who's involved in Montreal at the, mm -hmm. it, more broadly, but that doesn't mean it's like who is leading, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say definitely the Quebec government, uh, because they subsidize industry, who is leading is also who gets most funding. So if we look at 
Mila, Ivado, if we look at universities like UDM and McGill, as well as scale AI, which you might not know of, people might not have known, really known of. It's mm-hmm. one of my future research interests. It's part of this super cluster initiative, which again, it's like, what does that mean? Basically, the ISAD, the Ministry of Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada, gave this one supercluster project out of a few. I'm not sure exactly how many, but I know that it's about the entire fund is $950 million. The one for Scale AI was $230 million. Quite a discrepancy. Yeah, so it's so two, that's a big chunk of the of the money that goes to scale AI, and they are they were created to support Montreal's supercluster in terms of the supply chain and also the small and medium sized enterprises. So the expectations or the promises uh, are is that this entire supercluster initiative, the nine hundred fifty million, will contribute to sixteen point five billion dollars to Canada's GDP and also help create 16,000 jobs over the next 10 years. So that is like the main sort of reasoning behind and the rationale around funding industry for AI specific projects through these super clusters. What I find interesting about Scale AI is the way that they actually frame themselves on their website. As I was thinking about how to explain them in this interview, I think this is best kind of encapsulates what they do. So Scale AI is a consortium of private entities, research centers, academia, and high potential startups. Scale AI is the central pillar of Canada's AI ecosystem. As Canada's AI supercluster, we identify cross-sector collaborative projects and provide funding and expert guidance to help Canada stay ahead of the AI curve. So that's not telling me much about uh, supply chains. It's not really telling me much about anything besides that they really consider them to be the center of not just Montreal or Quebec's AI ecosystem, but Canada's. Uh, and at the same time, for, for them to provide this expert guidance and advice, which sounds like consulting, but isn't for these cross-sector collaborative projects, again, quite generic. So it's definitely industry focused. And again, I think that's where the most influence and the leadership goes to. Because even though you can have Mila and you know, we had Element, I think that's like the key, again, back to how AI is evolving and developing. It's a industry first, public second. Or maybe third. I mean, I'm not really sure where the public is in this conversation. So in terms of Element, which was like the darling of startups, of Montreal, of AI, of the future, of doing things differently, just got acquired by ServiceNow, a Silicon Valley-based company, and changed everything again. And parts of that is saying, well, look like... It's nothing new, but how do we break this pattern of having, you know, our government and taxpayers' money subsidize indirectly these companies that then get bought out 
and their IP intellectual property and resources and everything, skilled labor goes to wherever, another country or, you know, Silicon Valley and big tech, right? So how do we stop this element was supposed to be this company that was supposed to stop doing that. And in the end, it ended up being a little bit of the same. And why I'm mentioning them that it's not like they're, they were the, the most talked about company, but they were also the most, I think one of the most funded companies by government. You were saying before that um, Element AI sold out to Silicon Valley, and as a result, none of their investments or uh, their any sort of reciprocation that they had to the local economy or the local industry were were actualized because they all moved to the U.S. And there has been a rhetoric in news media of comparing Montreal to Silicon Valley or kind of bringing up Silicon Valley as an ideal or a model that Montreal strives toward. For the reason that you mentioned that people want the wealth to stay within Montreal or within the local industry, is it really the case that Montreal is going to be like Silicon Valley? And what does that actually mean? So I know that has been sort of the rhetoric that it's becoming or it's turning to Silicon Valley. I think there's definitely a push into forming more Silicon Valleys, but there's resistance even from within industry to not become Silicon Valleys in Canada. So I've seen this, you know, to to kind of give give one to the industry. But I think the challenge is that the business models are centered around big tech Silicon Valley models. So I'm not sure how this competition and then the economy and the global economy in the innovation space will happen differently and what kind of business models we could present here to counter what is happening in Silicon Valley. Like how do you compete at that global market space? And a short answer to that is really pushing into like breaking up the monopolies pushing antitrust law and doing all that work. So as we are seeing more of that happen within big tech last year and this year already, it, there's a hope in like not wanting to replicate or duplicate this model elsewhere. The problem is, is that once we do have a bigger company with potential to do things differently, let's say, you know, back to Element, in, they really struggled with developing products. And that's also because of the, the way the data sets are captured and exclusive to certain companies, right? So until other companies can start creating their own data sets that are just as good or competitive or whatever as Google's, IBM's, Microsoft's, I don't want to say they don't stand a chance, but there's definitely things that need to be done differently all around. So it can't just be in a corner industry needs to completely revamp the way they do innovation. And tech innovation, there also has to be this sort of like antitrust law and break up the monopoly movements going strong to give these companies a chance. With 
data sets being exclusive to specific companies, is that a phenomenon also within the big tech industry or is that specific to AI? So the AI data sets are within big tech. Like they have this monopoly over them and it's hard to break that and compete with that level of quality or size or whatever, everything for other firms to do it. So that's one of the challenge. Like you could have data centers, but that's not enough. You need the data sets to be able to compete at the same level. Uh, But that's, again, like we need to rethink the economy and we need to rethink how we do tech and innovation and then why we have to even do AI for everything. Like why invest so much in this and not, you know, other things. Like I could start, once you start comparing the amount of money that goes into this industry or industries because AI really permeates everything. And that's also the challenge with it that it's not like the AI industry, like AI can be in health, can be education, it can be in transportation, whatever. And, you know, environmental climate change initiatives, smart cities. So it goes on and on, but then we're leaving behind the usual. And how do we just change not leaving behind education, you know, public health, uh, you know, investing like human rights commission, social services, just things that are not about high tech, but also just about innovation. And I will say this forever. Innovation doesn't have to be with technology. That is 100% true. (laughs) And also something that is it's considered to be so unsexy to kind of improve upon our living conditions or it's when when really like that's where I think most of our money could be going. Um, Something that I've always been, I guess, curious about is what regulation actually looks like for the AI industry in the Quebec context, since sometimes large corporations are deterred by Quebec's commitment to a distinct society, language laws, high levels of bureaucracy and kind of peculiar socialist politics. And at the moment, the power of big tech is dependent upon bypassing regulation to uphold corporate power. So is the provincial government open to an underregulated AI industry because they're so desperate to promote local economic growth? Or is it is it regulated? What, what are the regulations surrounding this industry in Quebec and Canada? The short answer is that there's little regulation on AI, and that's where we're at in general. That's why you have all these AI ethics, responsible AI, ethical AI, you have all these frameworks and declarations, soft policy making, I would call it. The algorithmic impact assessment from the federal level, it's a start, but it's really just a start. So I want to start with in terms of the Quebec Experience Program in Immigration, um, the PEQ. So that was changed because of COVID uh, to announce this like special pilot uh, program that included program for workers in AI, IT, and visual effects sectors, you know, besides orderlies and workers in food processing. So that shows you... (laughs) I don't want to say the demand, but like the the way they're prioritizing immigration. And I know that was, that has been kind of like a criticized lens and contested 
prioritization of immigrants. And especially because the AI specific program considers French speakers and non-French speakers who are not obligated to know the French language, but must have a full-time job in Quebec and an annual salary of $100,000 in the Montreal region, right? So they're kind of bending rules around AI and the AI skill set. And yet, you know, as people have written that it's really shut out many unskilled workers, which the province also needs. And unskilled, what does that even mean? Like, just not an AI expert? Like, do we need AI experts? Is that what Quebec needs? Yeah, it's pretty um, So it's interesting to see the way they've prioritized this field still. And they're pushing for that, uh, even within COVID. And I'm not sure where they're going now when it comes to, you know, this element AI being sold, acquired by ServiceNow. You know, we still have Mila, we still have the universities, we have Scale AI. I'm thinking Scale AI is going to play a bigger role. Maybe people start speaking about it because no one really knew Scale AI or knows them. I, I urge everyone to just kind of take a look and see what, what supply chain means and what does that do to like trade agreements or not. So there's a long way to go with regulation. We have the Declaration on Responsible AI Development that was put together four years ago, but that's still like very light touch. I still consider the declarations to be like the first step. And again, like who gets invited to participate in those things? Okay, you could still go to the website and be a citizen and a Montreal resident or Quebec resident, Canadian citizen and participate. But who goes back to that declaration and then goes to an AI company and it's like, oh yeah, you're doing, you're following all the principles. Good for you. You're following the the well-being principle, like some of these are just so generic and so broad, there's there's just not even the loopholes around them. I mean, anyone can do it if you just frame it a certain way. And it's all about the framing with AI language. And if I go up to the federal government and looking at the algorithmic impact assessment, the AIA, just this questionnaire to do make sure what you, you're building as a company or as a designer, whatever you're deploying and developing and using is ethical, responsible, and so on. That is also a tool that companies just have to commit to. There's no legal binding uh, nature to it. The directive on automated decision-making, ADM, it's targeted to ways that governments use AI only, not the way industry uses AI. And so much of, back to AI, so much of AI is made and used by, built by industry. They all, we also need to have all these mechanisms and rules around it and oversight commissions that are independent and can, ask questions and can go back to things that they promised and keep track of it.
many journalists, industry leaders, and Canadian politicians, including Premier François Legault, claim that AI and tech will become the economic focus in Canada. During this economic downturn in COVID, when lots of basic social services are strapped for cash, the government and investors are pouring millions of dollars into Canada's AI industry. In the current historic moment, we are facing unprecedented wealth inequality and climate catastrophe that has pushed much of mainstream society to the left. There's a pretty widespread desire to radically uproot our social and economic systems. With the advent of COVID, the discourse on essential work especially has made many people reevaluate what we need more of and what we need to invest in to promote social wealth, welfare like childcare, healthcare, agriculture, municipal maintenance, or anything along those lines. With all of this going on, why is there so much momentum going towards AI? Isn't it sort of a superfluous economic priority considering that the foundations of our social structure are not very equitable, or do you think that there's room for both? So the, the millions continue because it's technology and it's innovation, and that has always played this they've always received the money. So I'm just seeing that as business as usual. And in terms of competing, you know, globally with the economy and and all that rhetoric, I'm not saying that's the way it should be, but things aren't being done differently. Like they didn't, the opportunity to rethink things, I'm not seeing that yet. Hopefully we'll see more of a change towards other departments and other agencies within government and also just other nonprofit industry that does other things, uh, not AI, but it's, it is in the millions and if not billions, right, of what has been invested and what plans to be invested. The mentality is like, we funded so much so far, like when do we stop or where does this go? There was a plan. There's a strategy for five years and they're continuing it. And they're the, the global partnership on AI is launching a center of excellence in Montreal. You know, Yashua Benju is leading the responsible AI working group. Like they're just two different worlds. AI is an opportunity to look closer at what's what our chronic challenges and issues have been in our systems with or without the tech, like the tech isn't going to solve it. it. Technology will not save us. AI won't save us. Uh, if we just throw more tech at the problems that are caused by just people in society, we're not going it, to, it's just going to make it worse, actually. And, and there's many, many scholars and authors who have written about this. But yet it's still like the thing to be invested because we need to invest in technology to to invest in innovation. And I don't know how we can change that rhetoric. I just don't think these two can go side by side, like equity and that kind of heavy, aggressive innovation and technology. I don't think those two worlds can exist (laughs) together. If we have public institutions, how can they be accountable to the people, including how they invest industry, even though parts of, you know, what government should invest in is industry but how do we make sure industry is also accountable to the people which is actually not a thing that they are right industry doesn't owe us anything and that's a problem when it becomes so much ingrained in our lives like the products they make 
really define and change the way we function, the way we learn, like who we even meet, then we need to rethink like what their responsibilities are and also like the accountability because that's really missing in this entire conversation. But that's a lot to unpack. So it's whether or not we're looking at reforming or changing government bodies. We look at budgets and spending and we start having conversations around how those public money can be changed. That's not about AI, but it has a lot to do with it because it's the way we we fund it. What kind of policy do you think could be implemented to to make it more socially desirable? Well, I think first we just have to have regulations. So there needs to be like sanctions or government needs to say, no, we're not going to build it. We're not going to procure it. We actually won't support industry that will. And we're going to shut down companies that will make really bad AI or not bad AI, AI that's bad for people. We can't be afraid of saying no to some of this stuff. And I really do see this, I don't know if it's like Canadian politeness or diplomacy of, you know, not stifling innovation. Like, trust me, the regulation is so far behind that will never stifle innovation um, <laughs> with emerging tech like AI. Maybe with something different, but, um, you know, we can work together on this. And there's also this desire to, you know, back to Silicon Valley and move fast and break things, right? We do see that in the way this stuff rolls out, in the way that we want to do things more efficiently and faster. And a lot of these processes are slow. A lot of the way um, that participation happens is slow. So we need to embrace that within policymaking, but definitely looking at like what not to build not to procure, which companies, you know, figuring out which ones have human rights abuses, don't hire them within Canada or outside. Then within Quebec, really think about, do we really need AI for this? Can, can, we, can we do it without AI? I think there's definitely like scaling back and thinking, okay, there's room for AI, but why are we just taking a box? Because we need to have a budget for innovation. And can we rethink what we say innovation? Can it be AI and something else? to think and the sooner the better of a cybernetic meadow where mammals and computers live together in mutually programming harmony like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think right now please of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. I like to think it has to be of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature 
returned to her mammal brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. What are your thoughts on this robots are taking over the world discourse and is automation really a risk to the economy? What sort of jobs will be delegated with automation and also what kind of jobs will be created within the AI industry, even beyond just the like programming kind of jobs? So I really stay away from the like robots will take over um, discourse. And just because I think it, it goes into that, let's imagine this dystopian future that's not addressing the critical problems with AI now. <laughs> just like where automation is a problem. It has always been a problem with technology over time and over centuries. I think the key parts of automation is again, like who loses out most in this? It's not white men if not wealthy people, and really think about then like who AI really serves first. I would say I'm not afraid about AI in the sense that the creators or the the people who lead these companies that are at the forefront of AI will not ever want to be replaced as humans. So at that very level of ego, like it's not, I'm not sure it's going to happen and we're going to automate everything and we'll just have to sit still while everything else around us will be done by some machine. I think that's a really intense way to think about the future. I go against that narrative also because it takes away the human and what we can do and how we can participate within a democratic society. So what is our role more than just voting or how do we participate? How do we respond to new things that are rolled out by in public policy at the city level or, you know, with the province or, you know, even at the federal level? I think there's definitely, there's a missing component within this automation where it's not only that tech is inevitable, but that we don't really have a say in it. Like things will just get built and rolled out and that's just the way it is because industry decides i'm tired of just industry deciding and then we have privatizing public security services and i would argue that would be what the smart city plan for sidewalk labs was in toronto so you have a lot of privatization of public space with new sensors and rolling out this sort of surveillance-like technology that's governed and managed and owned by corporations. In terms of the smart city thing, not everyone actually knows very much about the kind of smart city development in Canada especially. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what actually a smart city even is or means and also the follow-up question to that is, what does the development of AI have to do with the narrative of Montreal as a smart city? Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question, and it's hard to answer. I think a lot of people don't know what a smart city is. Like, they just think it's like doing things with tech in a city that's more efficient or more effective. But I would say 
the smart city, you know, look, looking at the way it's, the plan is rolling out in, in Montreal, right? Because they won the smart city challenge from the feds, city of Montreal, and they're trying to, to do it differently. They, they saw sidewalk, they saw Google uh, in Toronto and they're like, okay, we're not going to do that. So it's trying to understand how to bring data and data collaborative data sharing to have better insights on social issues. So that's like one sort of component. It's like, how can you get organizations to work together to share some of the, their data to help them collectively support them in, in solving a societal issue? Let's say like at, at one level that can be what a smart city can do in terms of smart as in data driven, which is also a term I am skeptical of. I think it still comes from a narrative of expos around smart cities and having all these platforms and apps to do things faster, faster and better, apparently, to have more real-time information about various needs. Um, I just think smart cities have been developed in so many different ways. I don't even know what the definition for it would be. Maybe I'm also in like the academic space, which is, you know, you can spend an hour just talking about a definition. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's challenging because it's just rolling out in Montreal. So I'm really curious to see how, you know, Montreal en commun will be done differently and how it will affect everyday citizens versus the, the organizations that are working directly with the city and how things will be rolled out. Like, are you going to, are we going to have sensor? We're not going to have sensors. You know, who decides what will be placed in public spaces? How will that decision be made? I'm really interested in the data governance aspect of it, but as well as the tech governance and who gets to make this stuff and how do they procure it? I mean, it's definitely a huge component of smart cities. Uh, and we do have a lot of open procurement here, but procurement in, and at the federal level is also quite open, but company data isn't as open. So I still will put on my open government and open data hat on and say we need those data sets available to the public so journalists can look at it, data scientists can look at it, and research advocacy, digital rights nonprofits can say like, hey, what is this? Where is it going? Why did you choose them? Like we need to be able to ask questions and not just uh, let the stuff roll out. In 2018, Canada hosted an international panel on AI to address some of the ethical concerns imposed by the AI industry and also the, uh, the technology itself. On their agenda was how data for AI projects is collected and accessed, the effects of AI on human rights, whether people trust AI, the effect of automation on the job market, and the military uses of AI. With all of the parallels drawn between Montreal and Silicon Valley, why is the housing crisis and gentrification not at the forefront of the discussion of the political discussion? Yeah, I mean, great question. 
I've seen a lot of skepticism in drawing correlations between how the tech industry or AI industry influences or affects gentrification or impacts gentrification or causes it. I don't know if it's too early to tell or there's research being done right now that is, is working on this question. We need to go back and look at the gaming industry, look at how that has changed the Montreal scene and seeing now an elements building, what are we gonna have now? You know, you have Mila next door, you have Microsoft research or just Microsoft close by as well. So you see, you see the, you know, Park X create these centroids of tech companies because they're cheap or whatever and not necessarily care about how they're throwing the housing market in up in the air and affordable housing goes down the drain. People don't want to make correlations in the same way that, oh, well, you know, the cost of housing is just going to go up and that's just natural and you have gentrification everywhere and AI is, is closed data, you know, AI isn't, it's not about public accessible information that's open government or open data. Like it's a, it's a whole different field. So I'm hoping that there could be research done around like, you know, what are these companies doing? How have they been moving towards it? Looking at rental market, looking at the housing market and how have things changed in which neighborhoods and also like who do these companies, like what is their profit and who do they benefit and what kind of taxes do they pay? And then also what taxes do foreign companies pay here? Do you think the prominence of AI research in Montreal, is it all related to the prominence of universities or the number of universities in Montreal? Definitely. I mean, again, the first AI strategy we've had was research-centered. Like CIFAR's pan-Canadian AI strategy is a research strategy. It's not a government strategy. Government-funded, but that's something else. And not only government-funded, also industry-funded. That is definitely a key point. I think so much of AI R&D happened within universities. It was weathered out in universities. So they're a very key player in this, but they, it's also not just the universities, it's the computer science departments, it's engineering departments. It's a very specific technocratic approach to making AI and studying AI and, and creating data scientists and creating these programmers and developers, which, okay, we need, but we also need social scientists. We also need just civil servants outside of tech altogether. I'm not saying we shouldn't have technology, but we shouldn't just build it because it's cool or because it can do things faster or that we do not think about our own domain expertise when we look at the social implications, economic implications, political implications. And a lot of the time when the rollout happens with talking about implications we silo the social because we say oh what are the social implications but I'm like it's actually socioeconomic and it really affects people's well-being financially like this stuff isn't like oh it just makes me feel bad or 
this tech is racist or sexist. It's, it's more than that. It's, it affects the way I live my life and we still are in a capitalist society. So I just think that if, you know, back to students, we should get not just a diversity of students, but a diversity within one department, but across the board in what they're studying because interdisciplinarity is super important and it's hard to do, but it's kind of necessary, especially when all this new tech comes out that affects everyone and it's not just contained to one thing. We cannot just have this stuff roll out like AI for good, data science for good. The fact that we have to say for good causes concern. And I, I hope people can reflect on that more. Thinking about your critical rhetoric of modern tech industries, it might be relevant to reflect on the Luddite movement in 19th century industrial England, which is often remembered as the iconic revolt against machines staged by English textile workers. Ruha Benjamin talked a bit about this briefly in The New Jim Code. Some of the listeners might view these critical stances that we are taking as being quote unquote against technology. Um, And the Luddites are often remembered as people who are out of touch and hated technology. But I think it's incredibly helpful and relevant when analyzing the AI industry and even big tech to recall that the Luddites were actually protesting the social costs of technological progress that the working class was being forced to accept the communications director of a nonprofit AI research company, Jack Clark, pointed out that although the term Luddite is often used today as a term of disparagement for anyone who's presumed to question or oppose automation, the Luddite response was actually directed at the manner in which machinery was rolled out, uh, which was without consideration of its negative impacts on workers and society overall. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with that. We just uh, need to be more careful and inclusive and take our time. I completely agree. I don't think this is about, you know, saying let's not have tech at all. Uh, It's just questioning, again, the negative impact and what that means for everyone, not just for the few I guess it goes back to the beginning. We don't need to have uh, innovation with technology. And I think that's a good space to be in to start reimagining a future that doesn't have to be engulfed in, okay, where does AI play out in, in my life in the future? So just thinking like, how could things be changed without AI, AI can be there. How do we regulate it? How do we protect workers? How do we go back to, you know, making unions cool again? But we are already seeing that. We're seeing tech won't build it movement. We're seeing tech workers begin to unionize. How can we make this the status quo and acceptable throughout? I'm not sure if any of the... um, companies in in Montreal or in Canada that are AI companies have unions. Can they? Should they? Should they have workers' rights? Should we go back to what Timnit Gebru asked for, which is whistleblower protection for AI research scientists and companies? So again, like more about protecting people 
around the tech that gets built. Uh, even if they, you know, contribute to building it, it's still the, the employer who kind of calls the shots. So how do we do that from within to let society know what's really going on? And at the same time from uh, outside, how do we create movements with community in collectives that are physical and virtual about local social issues and then seeing you know, if tech can help us solve that or if actually tech is the problem, how do we investigate Park X and how people's lives have been negatively impacted by the AI scene? Who do we talk to? How can we get involved in local politics and then also better understand the federal level politics? I mean, there's so many different like avenues to go about this. So again, it's like not a against machines but just more like for people <laughs> and for a better collective society that's not just about the individual and like my data and how do I make sure I'm not hurt but we're not hurt absolutely could you talk a bit more about the tech won't build it movement and what that is and what they've done yeah so parts of that came out of Google and like uh, Project Maven, which was a uh, contract that Google took with the Department of Defense in the U.S. And a lot of people decided that they don't want to work for a company who will build technology that will kill people. And they revolted. And that's a hashtag. Tech won't build it. You can see how it's rolled out. Um, and it continued with like Amazon and Again, there's the, the big tech element to it, but I still think that there could be small tech involved. Like if small tech decides to take on a Department of Defense, National Defense project, that's very questionable. Can they do this? Can they revolt or protest? Uh, so tech won't build it kind of, you know, first they protested against these really harmful contracts and technologies and then second they started to build unions uh, which have never been done so again like imagining outside of what doesn't exist is really important to take you out from this place of pure not just anger which is important but a place to say like okay well what can I do to build something else instead of being I don't want to be stuck in despair like I want to move away from that so uh, it's been really inspiring to see them and, and build unions. What do you think Montreal AI companies and universities should do to prevent the ethical problems and the gentrification associated with AI? Do you think mitigation is enough, such as the Montreal Declaration for Responsible AI, or are these problems intrinsic to the industry, or is there a safer way to invest in AI? All right. So I think that there needs to be more public involvement, public consultations, but not just public, like consultation is also an interesting word. Like how do you get public participation to be at the forefront of the AI scene? I don't want to just see industry players there and some academics. I want to see like people that are representing public uh, NGOs and so on be invited but also have these people that are the like the key people within the AI space go to other spaces because I find it it's like oh come to us 
we have, you know, we're doing these uh, events, presentations, whatever. It's always, you know, I'm not sure how much of the vice versa dialogue or conversation or is happening. Like, I really want to see Joshua Bungio learn from and listen to community-based organization in Montreal that works on social issues, affordable housing, anything, really. Just get to know them and try to, like, reframe and rethink, like, his world based on, like, the local context in that way. That is I what I think that the Montreal AI scene institutions and people should do. Get to know the socioeconomic specifics of the city within the people who are working at the front lines, who are working on social issues or community-based organizations that have nothing to do with tech or AI in that way. Like they use it, but they don't, you know, they're not like cutting edge data scientists. I think that's really important. Uh, But then again, universities should become more interdisciplinary in the way they do AI. I want to see some like sociology, anthropology, geography departments, human geography, other social scientists, beyond like law, beyond philosophy and computer science, which is a given, engineering departments are given to start working in this space more and to maybe revisit the declaration for responsible AI and see, you know, four years later, five years later, how can we look back at this, at all these workshops we did, all these reports we've written and see what we can learn from them. Stop stop writing new things always, but like come like kind of be like reflective, even though that's really hard for the, the AI scene because it's so fast paced. I, I think you slow down and what's to slow down and just be like, hey, <laughs> we did this thing. We gathered all these people, but can we what can we do? What how what how was this helpful? Yeah, and just be more transparent and accountable. Have a better communication, just strategies with people outside these spheres so they're not just elite. And you're not just also making AI be about robots, like it's something else. Thank you so much, Anna, for the interview and the incredible insight. If you would like to read more of Anna's work, you can check out her website, AnnaBranduscescu.com, which will be linked in the show notes. She's also on Twitter at Anna B. Mapp, that's A-N-A-B-M-A-P. The Expanding Economics podcast is a production of CKUT 90.3 FM on occupied Ghana-Gahaga territory. My name is Leora Schertzer. I write and host the show. My fellow editors and producers are the wonderful Mirabai Francois and Holden Folk. Additional research and writing for this episode by Ella Corkham and Chloe Cavis. Our theme song is by Ross Graham, and additional music by Spudnik Booster, Zelo Zico, Human Phobia, and Cryptic Scenery. The poem you heard was All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace by Richard Brodigan, read by Leora Schertzer. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Expanding Economics. If you have any comments, feedback, or topic requests for this economically precarious time, 
You can get in touch via email at expandingecon.mtl at rethinkeconomics.org. If you want to read more about our greater mission and are curious about heterodox economics, you can check out the website of our affiliated network, rethinkeconomics.org.